health care is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Welcome back, folks. A quick note about today's show before we get started. Today, we're going to depart from our standard format and talk about a problem that is growing in our country, in our communities, and in the companies that we work in. This episode is part two in a two-part series about the opioid crisis, and we're going to talk about this epidemic with someone who is a victim of opioid addiction himself and has emerged from recovery to help bring awareness to the issues. Hope you find this one informative. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Tim Ryan. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Michael. Truly an honor. So to get us started, Tim, I'm going to read a brief bio about you so the audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll get into this interview. So a tireless advocate for long-term recovery, Tim Ryan is no stranger to addiction. Despite a successful business career, Tim found himself in the grips of heroin and ultimately was sentenced to seven years in prison for drug-related convictions. Tim ultimately got clean and sober behind bars. Today, Tim Ryan is the founder and leader of A Man in Recovery Foundation and motivational speaker with a mission to help one addict at a time transform their lives from dope to hope. He has been featured thought leader in numerous national media, including USA Today, HLN, Fox Business News, Newsweek, Chicago Tribune, Steve Harvey, show with Dr. Drew, and dozens of nationally syndicated radio shows. He was an invited guest to the 2016 State of the Union Address. He is also the author of the best-selling book, From Dope to Hope and is currently the National Director of Professional Relations for Wavelengths Treatment Center, as well as a spokesperson for Rehab.com. Tim frequently speaks to corporations, healthcare providers, municipalities, community groups, and schools, and others who care to hear his message. I think that's a good start. What do you think? I kind of sit back when you say this, and it's like, wow, that's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's who I am today. It is. Well, you've got quite the story. So the topic of today's discussion is the opioid crisis and how it may be impacting employers. But before we get there, I think it makes sense to talk about your your personal story. So you were, by all means, a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll give you the expedited version. I didn't come from a bad family. You know, my, my dad worked at the Chicago Board of Trade for 26 years for a little company by the name of E.F. Hutton. He was senior vice president, ran the whole country. My mom uh, was the second employee at a, a nonprofit called Market Day, which became a multi-billion dollar nonprofit nationwide. We, we lived on a lake. We had dinner every night at 6.30. We were all adopted. But I was a kid that, you know, at 14 started drinking, at 15 tried cocaine, and everything else under the sun. And at 21 years old, I checked myself into drug treatment for the first time. And, and I like treatment. And, you know, I started going to these 12 step base meetings and started businesses. But every time I would implode, I would always go back to, to those meetings. And at, at 22, I had the third largest door to door sales company in the United States marketing cable television door to door. I, I made my first million at 22. I lost it by 23. Stumbled into the technology space at 26 years old. I'm, I'm a partner in a management consulting firm in Chicago. And I was a guy that always wore the mask. In the corporate world, I was human resources worst nightmare. Because right. I, was, I was in the office at six in the morning. I didn't leave till the boss left at seven, seven thirty. But back in the 90s, you know, I could 
interview clients at the bar and was doing cocaine and had all these things that um, made me feel good, a new boat, a new Harley, a new car. But every night I'm with myself by myself, crying to myself. And I, I met my future wife at work and uh, she had a three-year-old son, Nick, and adopted Nick. And we had three more children, Nick, Max, Tanner, and Abby. You know, things would get worse. I got clean for 14 months, took a guy to Chicago to move out of his apartment and his roommate was doing heroin. And I tried one bag and that took me down another 12 year road to utter hell and destruction. What people can't grasp is at the peak of my addiction, I had an office in the Wrigley building on Michigan Avenue. I was making a half million a year, but on top of that, I I had a $500 a day heroin habit. And I'd spend two nights a week sleeping under Lower Wacker Drive with the homeless people because that's where I was more comfortable instead of being in my five-bedroom house with my wife and four kids because that's where the disease of addiction takes you, with yourself, by yourself, crying to yourself because I can never put my hand up and ask for help. December 16th of 2010, I overdosed while driving. I hit two cars. I put four people in the hospital, one being a nine-month-old baby. By the grace of God, they're all okay. It was my third DUI, my fifth driving on revoke. They found the spoon and syringe. I knew I'm going to prison. I I got to a point in my life where I wanted to die, but I didn't want to hurt myself. And I just went back into using more. I fought my case for 21 months in the midst of fighting my case. My oldest son, Nick, and I started using drugs together, heroin. That's how we bonded. My son became my partner in crime. And then October 30th of 2012, I was sentenced to seven years in prison. And, and when I went in, I mean, I weighed 100, I'm six foot one, 205 today. I weighed 158 pounds. I skin and bone, I was walking. Wow. But I needed to be sat down. It was, it was call it God's time out for me. I did 13 and a half months. I, I plugged into a 12-step base program in prison. I wrote the, the business plan for my nonprofit. My wife divorced me. We lost our home in foreclosure. My oldest son was in active addiction. And upon my release, I plugged into recovery, set up my nonprofit, started some family support groups, started truly living and embracing recovery. And eight months later, on my 21-month sobriety date, my 20-year-old son, Nicholas, succumbed to a a heroin overdose and, and passed away. And I had two choices that day to to go to a 12-step base meeting or or go use. And I never thought of using. And I went to a meeting, never looked back. And in in my son's passing, he really pushed me to work deeper and harder. Fast forward to today, you know, May 1st, I'll be six and a half years clean and sober. I'm a national director with Wavelengths Treatment Center in California. I run a nonprofit, A Man of Recovery. I've published a book. I've had a documentary on A&E. I've been in 500 publications. I am a subject matter expert on the opiate epidemic from someone that's in addiction. You know, I I joke around and say I hold two PhDs. I have one in pain and I have one in partiology. But, you know, I know what works. I know what doesn't work. You know, I've, I've buried 140 people in the past four and a half years. Through my efforts, my foundation, you know, we've probably assisted close to 5,000 people into treatment. And I can assure you when I grew up, I wanted to be a professional water skier and a stuntman. I never wanted to be an alcoholic or a drug addict, but it took me to realize a lot of it had to do with underlining trauma, and trauma could be emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, sexual, that I never addressed, 
and I always wore the mask. So whether I'm presenting to a corporation or a high school or a college or a community forum, the hardest thing for people to do is put their hand up and ask for help. But outside of that, when they ask for help is how to find the resources to get the help. I want to talk more about how to find the resources to get the help. But before we do, one, in hearing your story, you're truly one of the lucky ones, right? Because you survived and a lot of people don't. That's what I try to instill in even the heroin, you know, you go back to the 70s, early 70s, when people think junkie or addict, they think homeless person on the corner with the needle in their arm. And that's a big misconception. I mean, two years ago, the average opiate addict and or heroin addict was a 22-year-old white middle-class female and a 23-year-old white middle-class male. The youngest heroin addict I've worked with is 12 years old. The oldest is 78. From all races, social, economical statuses, this does not discriminate. I've worked with billionaires, multimillionaires, middle class, lower, poor, homeless, indigent, and everyone in between. I think that speaks to the power of the crisis. But when we hear about it, the word is opioid crisis. But for the average person, I don't believe they know what that means. And so can we start from just a macro perspective and, and, and talk about what are some of the drugs that fall under the umbrella of opioids? So when you talk about opioids, in 75% of the people that start on opioids get them from a doctor. You know, they're prescribed to them, uh, teeth getting pulled, a sports injury, I uh, threw out my back shoveling snow, tripped and fell walking the dog. But opiates are things like hydrocodone, Vicodin, Percocet, Percodan, Demerol, Dilaudid, Oxycontin, Oxymorphine, Loratab, Opana, heroin, Suboxone, Methadone, Fentanyl. Those are all opiates. And what I will explain is if I had a thousand people in an auditorium and we all did opiates for a week straight, at the end of that week, every person will have an addiction to opiates. 90% of the people that get hooked on opiates will never get clean and sober. They'll either end up dead or in prison. And that's reality. And you can thank Big Pharma, Purdue Pharma in particular, for, for starting this pandemic. And, and then the cartels jumped on it. I mean, the heroin today, back to the 70s, they had to shoot the heroin because it was 12 to 14% pure. I could go to any town in the United States of America and purchase heroin and it's going to be 50 to 75% pure. You don't need to inject it. You can snort it. You can smoke it or you can shoot it. It's easier today for a child, I call them children, under 21 to get opiates or prescription, illegal prescription pain pills than it is to get a pack of cigarettes or a six pack of beer. That is incredible. Incredible. And so you mentioned 75% of addicts start with a prescription. So how does that pain prescription turn into an addiction and, and, and turn into higher severity or, or, or uses of other things? So what happened is you look at the JACO accreditation through the joint commissions have you ever been to the hospital in the past 15 years or the doctor and they have the smiley faces? What's your pain threshold? 15 years ago, they did not want people leaving a doctor's office and or a hospital in pain. So they just wrote prescriptions because the doctors are paid on the reviews that the patients give them. So if I'm giving my doctor a bad review, here, here, have this prescription. And we started over-prescribing. You know, you look at medical professionals, in all their medical school, they get one hour of addiction training. 
it's ludicrous. And they're writing all these pills, but now they're trying to change it to where, no, don't have them leaving in pain. And, and this is affecting people that have chronic pain. They're, they're taking away their meds. When I will do a presentation, I'll ask families, how many people have unused prescriptions in their medicine cabinet right now? Half the hands go up and I'll say, all right, you have a house, you have a lawn. Little Bobby, your neighbor kid, 16, he's trying to make some money. You pay him 25 bucks to cut your lawn and he asks to use your bathroom. Come on in, Johnny. Sure. Here, I'll get you a glass of water. While he's using your bathroom, he's rifling through your medicine cabinets you taking your prescription pain meds that you're not using. Or I'll have the the father that says, well, you know, I injured my back and I'm saving them if it hurts again. I educate people, dispose of them. Don't put them in down the toilet. Most police stations have drop boxes or pharmacies to get rid of them. And if you need them again, go back to your doctor. Right. Right. A lot of parents become accidental drug dealers without even knowing it. We've gotten to the point where physicians were overscribing, and it seems like the government's kind of starting to crack down on that. And so physicians are pulling back those scripts. But what happens to the person who's used to getting a regular pain prescription and is no longer able to get that prescription? Yeah, and that's a difficult case because there's a lot of people that have fibromyalgia or whatever and have chronic pain and need this, and they're getting affected. Unfortunately, they're the fallout from. This isn't an epidemic we have going on. This is a pandemic. You know, we have 200 people a day dying from opiate overdoses. Whether it's prescription pain pills and or heroin, we're going to top 100,000 people probably by the end of this year that die. In the peak of the AIDS crisis, they were allocating, the government was allocating about $23,000 per person with HIV. The government is allocating $125 per person struggling with substance abuse right now. Incredible. And everyone's, it's everybody else's problem. And everyone wants to point the finger, look, we, we have a pandemic going on and we need to shift every aspect because what we've been doing is not working. You say pandemic. The statistic I have here is from 1999 to 2017, almost 400,000 people died from overdose involving an opioid. So that's about 130 per day. I'm going to guess that's probably more than any, any war that we've ever been in. When I started doing this five years ago, it was 119 people a day. Last year, it was 179. We're going to top 200 people a day now. Last year, we lost more people in one year to opiate overdoses than we did the entire Vietnam War, the entire war over 12 years. We lost more people in one year. I just had a a friend of mine I went to high school with, I'm 50 years old, messaged me yesterday letting me know that her nephew died and sends me a message this morning, what music can we play at his funeral? You know, it's it's heart-wrenching. And unfortunately, with what I do, I'm the guy that gets all those phone calls. Hey, thanks for everything you did, but we, we lost Mark or Sue or John, and can we have the memorial funds donated to your nonprofit? I never started a nonprofit thinking we'd be raising money through memorial funds. The question often comes up, how did we get here? And I think what I've learned is that this is actually our, our second opioid crisis where we had one in the early part of the last century. And a lot of fingers are being pointed at big pharma and certainly a lot of merit to that. But I think at this point, blaming people 
is not going to be part of a, of a real solution. And a lot of people might say, well, what is the government doing about this and, and expect a solution from, from the state or federal resources? I mean, do you think there is a policy and an enforcement solution here? Or what else do you think needs to be done to address the problem? I started the second program in the United States a little over almost four years ago in Dixon, Illinois, with Chief Danny Langlos of the Dixon Police Department. They have 55,000 people in their county and they had eight overdose deaths. So we started a program where someone struggling with addiction can walk into the police station and ask for help and they will put them into treatment, no questions asked. But the problem is Senator Durbin, who's a friend of mine, Dick Durbin, up in Illinois, there's three types of families, the families that have no insurance, the families that have state insurance, or the families that have good insurance, an HMO or a PPO policy. It's easier for me to get someone in treatment, say, in Illinois, where I'm originally from, with no insurance than people that have state insurance. With state insurance, we have 16 DASA beds per treatment center. They're wanting to open that to 32. That'll be filled in 24 hours. Right now, it is anywhere from a 8 to 12-week wait to get a bed. So you're telling a 25, 23-year-old heroin addict or opiate addict or alcoholic, I want to get help. Okay, can you call every Friday at noon to see if a bed's available? I'm just trying to figure out how to get through the day without dying. Right. Then you have the other pendulum, which they just changed in Illinois. If you have state insurance and you go to detox and treatment, and God forbid you get out and relapse, you cannot come back for 90 days. People relapse. Unfortunately, it's not enough. Treatment needs to be expanded from three to four weeks to a minimum you know, 90 days, six months, if not longer. That's one of the reasons I came out to California and, and joined Wavelengths. We can keep someone in a, in a full continuum of care from detox to residential treatment to partial hospitalization to intensive outpatient to outpatient in our step-down program through our structured sober living for four to six months. Not many places can do that. We actually just had the joint commissions out here doing our two-year review, and they said this is by far one of the best continuum of care programs in the country. But on the flip side, we only take out a network insurance or cash pay. Not everyone's in that situation. Insurance should be available to everyone, not based on your financial status. And the government needs to change that. So what I'm hearing is there's there's a lack of treatment centers that are available and the typical duration that might be covered if you do have insurance that covers this is really not long enough to make a meaningful difference. So literally an hour ago, a gentleman in Charleston, Illinois reached out to me. He said, Tim, I saw you speak six months ago. You helped my brother get into treatment. He said, my wife is struggling now. And I talked to him a little bit about her background. And he said, look, I have good insurance, but everywhere in Illinois is saying she can do three weeks, maybe four. He said, my wife has been struggling for 25 years. And I said, well, I could put her out to California in a minimum 90-day to 120-day program. He just texted me and said, my wife's set and ready to go. We're getting her on a plane. That just happened within an hour and hour and a half time. From his phone call, she's already getting set up to come out here. The problem is most people don't know how to contact someone like me. They go to Google, they type in treatment, they look at the pretty palm trees and swimming pools. There is 30,000 treatment centers in the United States. 
a number of Christian based, a number of nonprofits, a number of free people do not know how to navigate the system when it comes in, you know, payer providers, risk management, wealth management organizations that provide this, they need to get educated on what treatment truly is. And these are some of the other things that myself, my fiance, Jennifer Jimenez, who is a, a former supermodel, actress, that we go in and speak all over the country. Jennifer's 13 years sober. I'm six and a half, and we've both had mental health and substance abuse issues, and she's got a whole lot more than I do. Eating disorders (laughs) and everything else, but it's coming in and educating. People need to be educated. Knowledge is power. That's what we're missing. Let's continue the education here. What I'm hearing is that not all treatment centers are considered equal, right? So one, there's not enough. Two, the coverage from insurance may not be appropriate. And three, the level or the quality of care or treatment is not necessarily equal. So can you talk to that third point? I'll take my son, Nicholas, that passed away August 1st of 2014 at 20 years old from snorting two bags of heroin and eating one benzodiazepine, a Xanax bar. Nick had been to treatment five or six times. I always had great insurance. Nick had went to one program five times in another place once. If I would have known what I know now, I would have got my son on a plane out of Illinois to California or to a long-term program because Nick would go to these programs. He had spent three weeks. The people running the groups were a a 20-year-old intern with no clinical background. He would see a therapist twice in a three-week stay, and that's treatment. And, oh, here's your relapse prevention kit. Don't relapse. There's so many facets, and it's not one-size-fits-all but you need to not only work on the the substance abuse, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, you need to get down to the mental health and you need to work with the trauma. And it's not one size fits all. Say, you know, for recovery, it could be a 12 step base. It could be Christian. It could be Buddhist. It could be working out, but people need connection and purpose in life, but they need that longer variable to get the clarity to get the cobwebs out, to let the feelings and emotions come up so they can grasp this gift called recovery. You know, I don't have any any family members who have dealt with something like this, but you know, the notion that someone who's addicted to opiates could, in a three-week program, just walk out and be fine seems comical. It really is. And that's and people want to knock the 12-step based programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is spun off Narcotics Anonymous, Heroin Anonymous, Overeaters, Al-Anon, all these other things. There's 25 million people worldwide in long-term recovery through a 12-step-based program. It's a matter of learning how to change every aspect of your life. You know, I looked at my life, May 1st, I'll be six and a half years sober. In the past three months, I went through a divorce. I relocated to California. I'm in a new relationship. But what I had to do for Tim is a man in recovery was also in recovery make some changes in my life to truly be happy. And in the tools and the programs and the people I surround myself with had given me the push to do that. And I have such a freedom today, but if you're not connected with the right people and the right resources, we are setting people up to fail. And a lot of these centers are revolving doors. Oh, relapse is part of the journey. Come on back, come on. I won't take someone in any program I worked for or work with more than two times. 
if it hasn't worked the second time, let's get you somewhere else. Maybe you need more of a boutique or maybe we're, we're just not the fit for you. And I'm smart enough to say that. Most places don't. Turn them and burn them, turn them and burn them. They die. Bring them. You know, it's, I'm sick and tired of burying people. And, I, and I'm heartbroken when families call. I, Jennifer and I were doing a speaking event in Woodstock, Connecticut three weeks ago. A mother called me. Her one son is a nuclear physicist. One daughter is a psychiatrist. And the other son was big in the financial space. They all lost their jobs. They all live together. They're all heroin addicts. And they're all on state insurance now. And these people were making big money, intelligent, and trying to find them help. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult. And so you've got three working professionals that were successful. And and I'm going to guess that the gateway for them into that opioid addiction was prescription pain medication. Absolutely right. And, And what else happens too, you know, today it is social media, the phones, especially for the younger kids. That's our world today. And, and everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses. And in most families, husband and wife are both working and there's a pressure and, and whether they're drinking or here, try this, this will make you feel better. And man, then the monster's unleashed. And if people aren't, you know, that's why we do interventions. We come in and, and we do interventions and I've done over a thousand. I've had 11 people not go to treatment and I just meet people where they're at and I talk and I share, but you got to get someone to put their hand up and ask for help. But the thing is, when they put their hand up, we need an option immediately. We can't wait six to eight weeks to get them help. They're going to die. You know, the, the intent of me doing this series on the podcast is really to drive awareness And I think, you know, some of the examples that you've given today are powerful, but even more powerful. I mean, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you've done a show called Dope Man with A&E that is available on Amazon Prime Video. And that begins to kind of document the work of your nonprofit and how you're doing the individual outreach to help addicts in need. And I got to tell you, you know, as a parent of two children, the stories are gut-wrenching and I'd be lying if I didn't say I got a little teary-eyed, you know, watching portions of it. Do you want to talk about what your nonprofit is doing? Tell, tell people about the show just to, you know, give them a little bit more example of, of what you're doing to help people in this yeah. situation. You know, Dope Man originated, uh, originally I was asked to be in a documentary on the South side and West side of Chicago on why the gangs are selling all this heroin and why all the white middle-class people are purchasing it. And my phones were ringing and they, they flipped to doing a, a show on me, but it's basically a day in the life of what I do. And there's one scene in there to where a, a mother called me, her daughter's been prostituting herself since 16 due to heroin. I went and got her, brought her an hour away, got her into a detox. She walked out three days later. Two weeks later, we happen to have the film crew and the mom calls and I find her at a hotel but her pimp is driving away. So we're chasing them. Long story short, the pimp comes up to my truck. What are you doing? I said, look, I want her. She's a heroin addict. He said, I got a gun. I'm going to shoot you. And when I'm going in to get someone, I I block all that out. My mission is to get that person and, and get them on the road to recovery. And Becca was her name. She had a few slip ups two days ago. She just celebrated a year clean and sober. That's my mission is is to take the hopeless and put them on the road to where they can have hope again and they can rebuild their lives. And when I was in prison, I started outlining the, the 
bylaws and the outline for a man and recovery foundation. And basically what a man and recovery foundation does is we guide and direct people with no resources into long-term treatment programs. I've got some places throughout the country that might be a 12 step based or a Christian based program that are four months to a year long. We'll pay the fee to get them in, put them on a bus, plane, train, get them there, or we'll pay for people coming out of treatment to get on their feet and get into a structured sober living home, or someone just might need work boots and an outfit and a carton of cigarettes. Those are the things we do. And when I started the nonprofit, I went back into the technology space for three months out of prison and I quit and I set up this nonprofit and I thought I'd raise all this money and save the world. And what I found out very quickly was people would rather donate money to homeless dogs and cats than they would people struggling with substance abuse or or mental health issues. A majority of our funds for three years were raised through my speaking events. I donated every dollar. Unfortunately, we get money from memorial funds. We've had a few grants, some small private donors, but it's difficult to raise money. We get 10 grand in, nine grand's out the door. We get 20,000 in, 18,000's out. We have no employees, nobody takes a salary, and this takes up 90% of my time. And I have careers outside of that too. But when I go out to a place I use in South Carolina called Oaks Recovery, I was out there for a fundraiser three weeks ago and I had nine gentlemen come up to me and say, are you Tim Ryan with the Man of Recovery? I said, yeah. Said, without you, I'd be dead. You saved my life. You gave me an opportunity to get my life back. That's why I do what I do. There's no hidden strings, no agenda, but it's tough because I'm walking into toxic situations every day and And I need self-care for myself as well. And yeah, I appreciate those stories because, again, I think the the purpose of this interview is to bring awareness to to the problem. It's easy to say you have opioid abusers or high-risk users within your population and it's affecting your health insurance costs, right? It's easy to say that. It's not necessarily easy to qualify the problem or, or, or talk about, you know, the potential impact to individuals within an employer population. And I think that, you know, you've really given some, some color to the potential of how it can go wrong for somebody. So I'm going to give you, I don't have the exact breakdown, but the drug epidemic and the alcohol epidemic cost our taxpayers over a trillion dollars a year, a trillion dollars, alcoholism alone, 300 billion opiates. And I'll have families that say, well, I take you for instance, I don't have anyone struggling or this, how does it affect me? Well, it affects you by the cost of incarceration going up. It's much cheaper to give someone treatment than to incarcerate them. We, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And and there's some county jails and prisons that are now turning into therapeutic communities and peer-driven programs, the cost of crime and everything else. And, oh, let's legalize marijuana and, and raise tax money. And look at Colorado, legalizing marijuana was the biggest catastrophe that state's ever seen. And homelessness has went through the roof. Heroin use, crystal methamphetamine, DUIs for kids under the age of 25 is through the roof. School truancy, all this affects each and every one of us. Let's bring it back to the employer perspective. You just mentioned, hey, I don't know anybody, right? So I don't have a problem. So if I'm an employer, right? I'm a, I'm a CEO, I'm a CFO, or I'm an HR director. I'm listening to this. I might be saying, I don't see any of my employees overdosing. I don't think we have a problem. What would your response be to that? 
You have people like me that worked in your company. I was the best employee. I was the hardest worker and I was damn good at what I did. And I struggled with addiction my entire career. The scenario that happened to me, my boss after a holiday party, the the vice president of a $50 million management consulting firm sat me down and he said, Tim, uh, you get out of control at the parties with your drinking use and whatever else you do. I don't think you can drink at parties anymore. Fine, I just won't go to them. Instead of saying and confronting me, Tim, you're a great employee. We love you. We know you're struggling, but you have two choices. You need to tender your resignation or we need to find you some help. It's opening up that conversation in the workplace. I do a presentation on mind, body, and soul with employees, but I'm then dropping the mask. How well do you know the people you're actually working with? And if me, you, and and Jennifer were working together and Jennifer comes into work on Monday, two hours late, she looks a little disheveled. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. But you know, do you actually take the time to say, hey, what's going on? Well, I saw a car accident and a guy was thrown out of the car. He got run over and he got killed in front of me. We know we need to get her to HR, get her a week off, get her some trauma therapy. Scenario two is I'm missing every Thursday and Friday and I'm disheveled. Are you two going to actually come in and say, Tim, what is going on? It might not be me struggling, but it might be my wife or my child with addiction or mental health, but I'm not telling anyone. And what can we do to help that person? Third case scenario is you, Michael. You're my boss. You're CEO of the company, and I know you're struggling. Are we going to be able to confront you through love and grace and be able to, a lot of companies, when they know there's an issue, they don't know who to call. We need to have an intervention. We need to put down guidelines. I have so many families say, well, we did an intervention with mom and dad and grandma and it didn't work. You don't know anything about addiction. Why would you be doing an intervention? It's like me going out and selling benefits. I mean, I understand it, but I'm not going to, I'd be better off selling snow to an Eskimo. We don't know what we don't know in addiction in the workplace a third of all employees are struggling with some form of mental health or substance abuse. And we're not addressing it, but cost-effective wise, it is much easier to take that employee, get them into treatment, get them back, support them through love and grace instead of firing them. It's going to take five people to replace that one individual instead of taking the time to get them into the right program. But here's another issue. A lot of HR managers, a lot of programs don't know what are the right ones. I can't take a CEO of a Fortune 500, 1,000 company and put him into a program with a bunch of 20-year-old heroin addicts. He might even be, but he might need to get on his computer or be sheltered. You need to meet people where they're at and know what's available, and people just don't know. They go to Google and type it in. That's where we need to be educating the benefit managers, the HR, the C-level executives, because they all have issues. They just don't know what to do. Sure. I I think it really comes down to a paradigm shift. You know, I think for most organizations, they see an employee that has issues, and it's labeling them as a problem. And how do we work that person, you know, maybe out of the organization versus how do we support the people in our organization who are struggling with issues outside of the workplace to help them bring their best self and be productive members of the team? I go back to the scenario of one, my son, even though I was in addiction, I was trying to do everything to help Nick. 
When Nick got out of treatment, I should have let the neighbors know. I should have let people know so if they saw him struggling, they could kind of pull him aside or we could support him. But this is the elephant in the room and nobody wants to talk about it. The way they talk about it, they gossip by the water cooler. And people just want to talk and talk. I don't care about talk. I want solutions. I want solutions so people can get on the road and have the gift that I have today. Tim, you're not an employee benefits broker consultant, but I am. And so the recommendations that I would have for employers, you know, listening to this or brokers consultants listening to this is that we need to start quantifying working with our pharmacy administrator or insurance carrier to quantify the prevalence of opioid use within our populations. And not only our employee benefit, you know, medical insurance carriers, but also on the workers' compensation side, right? Because there's definitely usage within that population as well. Huge, huge. And what else happens too, so many people, you know, we have the Family Medical Leave Act and so many people are afraid to let their employer know, hey, I'm going to treatment. I I had a husband and wife come in and, and they're very high profile. And I had to sit down with the husband and say, look, you know, I was in the industry you're in. I guarantee you, your boss knows you're struggling, but we'll help you do the paperwork and he was going to take 30 days. He wants to stay in treatment for 90 days. And his company's totally fine with it. Everybody knows someone, but we need to start talking more. We need to educate on what FMLA is, how to get the help, but educate the human resource people because you have people that are in human resources that don't understand treatment. Well, my kid's son went here. My friend's son went here, so send him there it's not one size fits all. And, and it's educating on what is available and how can we help people? Well, I don't think anyone understands what treatment is appropriate. I mean, there's, there's, it's not a, it's not a level of expertise that, that people have, but step one, understand the prevalence of opioid use within your population via your medical carrier, workers' compensation carrier, work with your pharmacy benefit administrator to ensure proper utilization management and safeguards are in place. And then the third is, proactively educate employees on the risk of prescription opioid usage. And then there's got to be resources that an employer is providing for confidential help and treatment options. And, you know, I think a lot of times the, the, the traditional thing that an employer relies upon is an employee assistance program. Right. And, and more and more, we have got to be honest with ourselves and really agree that an employee assistance program is not effective for this type of stuff at all. And the problem is, and I I don't knock people that do it, but I don't go to a lot of these conferences and stuff because it's, it's, I don't want to use the word, it's the old boys club. And, and I've been this EAP rep for 20 years and I have my three places I've been working with for 20 years. This whole treatment industry is constantly shifting and adapting and changing and morphing. And that place you worked with 10 years ago might not be up to where we need to be now. So we need to expand that or we need to let people be able to do single case agreements. Cause I have a lot of, I had a gentleman out of Illinois that had, uh, he was an iron worker, had a great uh, blue cross blue shield PPO policy, but it would only let him stay within state. And he said, Tim, I've been to this treatment center three times. So we were able to sit down with the the union and everyone and do a single case agreement and get him into a 90-day program. And the man's a year and a half sober now because there was other things that he needed to work on that he was masking. 
Most treatment centers, in my opinion, really don't have what they need to be able to treat the individuals. I'm blessed with what I do because I know what works and I know what doesn't work. And I'll have a client that calls me or a guest or whatever you want to call them. You know what? You're not appropriate fit, but here's the three places I recommend. I think that's another great point is just from the employer side, working to try and make sure whatever insurance you're offering, that there is appropriate access to quality treatment centers. Now, that brings up another question. If I'm an employer, right, and I do recognize there's a problem, there's an employee that that we want to help, how does the employer figure out what are some quality options where we can direct this person to, other than going to a resource like yourself? Well, you know, that's a difficult one because you need to go to a subject matter expert that can really explain or come in. What I explain to families or when I speak at corporations or whatever, a family's either getting an HMO policy or a PPO. And a lot of families, well, I'm going to go with the, the HMO and there's a few of my doctors, but it's cheaper. Cheaper isn't always better. And I run into a scenario where I was working with a family. It was a Friday night. Their daughter who was a police officer. His daughter was ready to go to treatment. But with the HMO, we had to call the primary care doctor to get a referral. He was in Aruba for two weeks. So we weren't able to get that girl into treatment right away to where if you have an out-of-network policy, it opens the floodgates. That's why I also advise to rehab.com. Rehab.com is the only transparent website out there to find treatment that is not owned by a treatment center. So you can go to any state and search dual diagnosis, opiate addiction, and I tell people, do your due diligence. Don't just trust what I say. Don't just trust where I work. Ask questions. Ask to talk to the clinical director, the medical director. What are your outcome studies? What's working? People don't ask questions, and knowledge is power, and you need to learn to navigate the system and have people come in and educate your organizations on, all right, these are the 10 centers we're going to work with this year or, or that we're going to offer services to because you have adolescent care, you have adult. There's so many different variables involved. Tim, gosh, we've talked about a lot of uh, good stuff here, and, and I think it's been you know, certainly educational for me. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? How is this going to affect your bottom line, and what are you guys going to be able to do to support the clients you are providing services to? Because the last thing you want to have happen is, is a corporation that you provide benefits to, and they have people that are struggling and can't get the help, and God forbid they die. Those are the things you really need to take a look at your insights of your organization, because then it's going to start getting people talking and saying, hold on, remember we had this happen, this happen. We want to try to navigate the system as seamless as possible so people aren't afraid and also empower people. Look, this is a progressive and chronic disease. Let's treat it as a disease, not a moral failure. Remember, I wanted to be a professional water skier and a stuntman. I never wanted to be an alcoholic or a drug addict. But what else happens is, is people are struggling. They're afraid to talk about it. And, and educating you and your staff on how do we communicate this to the companies, the families we're providing services to so they feel okay picking up the phone and asking for help. 
You know, that may be the most powerful thing that, that you said today is, is we can't look at it as a moral failure, but rather as a, a chronic disease and illness. And if you look in a traditional health plan, I mean, there's a lot of resources that are thrown at helping people with chronic disease and illness. And so maybe one solution to this problem from the employer perspective is trying to remove the stigma of substance abuse and addiction and reclassify it as a chronic disease burden that should have the same resources that we throw at diabetes, right? Absolutely. Crohn's disease, lupus, cancer, you know, that 18-year-old kid struggling with cancer, we're having fundraisers, we're having this, that 18-year-old kid struggling with substance misuse disorder, it's their choice, they're a junkie, it's their fault. We need to shift the whole conversation, we need to shift how we talk about this and educate, educate, educate. Knowledge is power. All right. Well, hey, this was a good first step in education, Tim. Really appreciate uh, your time. How can people interested in learning more about you, your book, The Opioid Crisis, and, and your speaking services get in touch with you? My website is www.timryanspeaks.com. My personal cell phone, I will put it out there. I'm totally transparent. Is 312 312- 502-8671. I work for Wavelengths Treatment Center in Huntington Beach, California. You can Google my name, Tim Ryan Addict, Hope Dealer, Facebook, Instagram, a man in recovery. You will find me. Don't be that family that says, well, I know you're busy. I didn't want to bother you. Pick up the phone and call me or shoot me an email at uh, a man in recovery at gmail.com. Well, and I can vouch for the fact that you're accessible. You responded to my email and you responded to my call. So, (laughs) Michael, I thank you because this is a real important conversation. And these are the conversations we need to have to open up the doors so we can get people on the road to recovery. It's as simple as that. Agree wholeheartedly. Hey, I, I appreciate what you are doing in the community. I think your story is a powerful one. Appreciate what you're doing. On behalf of our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. It's been a great discussion. Thank you, Michael. Have a blessed day, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Tim Ryan's website and contact information. Lastly, if you're enjoying the content on the show, take five seconds today and open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom, and let us know what you think with the review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.